You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 22nd, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Today, we're going to talk about one tactic that coal plant owners have been using to keep their plants operating, even when it is not profitable to do so. In previous episodes, we've discussed some of the other tactics they use to stay in business when the market is telling them it's time to go, such as our discussion about out-of-market subsidies and re-regulation with Gavin Bade back in episode 41, our discussion on bailouts and wholesale market controls with Michael Panfill in episode 70, and our recent trilogy of shows on decarbonizing power markets in episodes 90, 97, and 100. In all of those shows, we talked about how the mere presence of uneconomic coal and nuclear plants on the grid can distort wholesale power market prices and prevent cheaper, newer, nimbler renewables from entering the market at all. Which calls into question the wisdom of using out-of-market subsidies, capacity payments, direct bailouts, and other novel payments to keep uneconomic plants operating, as several U.S. states have done in recent years. But there's another tactic, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It's variously known as self-committing or self-scheduling, and it happens when a utility that owns a coal-fired power plant elects to operate the plant no matter what the going rate for power is, even if that price is below its operating costs. Obviously, if the plant were operated by a merchant generator who has to take price risk, it would not be run. But if it's operated by a fully regulated utility, the utility may be able to pass the costs of operation onto their customers no matter what, essentially forcing them to bail out uneconomic coal plants without having to go to all the trouble of asking for additional cost recovery from a regulator or getting a legislator or wholesale market operator to give them a handout in one form or another. And best of all, from the utility's point of view, it all happens more or less invisibly. Only a researcher with a sharp eye and an expert knowledge of what to look for would even detect these uneconomic operations. So today we're lucky to have one such researcher, Joe Daniel of the Union of Concerned Scientists, join us to explain this phenomenon and to share his extensive research into it. According to that research, self-committing has burdened customers in four of the major wholesale markets of the U.S. with at least $1 billion a year in excess costs, costs that utilities pass on to their customers without any need for appealing to a regulator or legislator or anyone else. They just do it. Energy Transition Show alumnus Travis Cavula, a former utility regulator who you'll remember from episode 105, reviewed Joe's work and offered an interesting blog post of his own, critiquing and responding to Joe's arguments, which in itself is interesting reading. And in this interview, I asked Joe to respond to some of Travis's points. Now, these are not easy questions, and there are some thoughtful arguments all around, so as always, I encourage subscribers to log into our website and find the links to all these studies in the show notes for this episode. Suffice it to say that this conversation should be very satisfying to the grid geeks out there who love the shows with high geek ratings. 
Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll note a decision by a major utility in Virginia to turn away from its plants to build new gas-fired power plants. We'll update the story on a major Colorado utility's decision to shut down its fleet of coal-powered plants. And we'll note a new estimate on the global cost of energy transition. And we'll salute two recent examples where solar-powered microgrids kept the lights on in the face of natural disasters. But first, our conversation with Joe Daniel, recorded December 5th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Joe, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to discuss some of your research into how and when coal power plants generate power and sell it into wholesale markets, and how you concluded that utility customers in four large wholesale markets in the U.S. are actually being forced to pay about a billion dollars a year more than they should be paying through what is known as self-committing or self-scheduling. So why don't we start there? What does self-committing mean? So I think it'll be helpful for listeners to start off with how markets were designed to work, because most people, when they learn about wholesale electricity markets and how they work, they learn that power plants are put in merit order or lined up from lowest marginal cost to highest marginal cost. And the market is run as a reverse auction, with the auction's clearing price being set by the most expensive resource needed to serve electricity. And there's a whole rational economic theory behind all of this. If you bid in too low, you might get called and lose money. And if you bid in too high, you might not get called and miss out on an opportunity to make money. So there's a whole theory behind why the auctions are set up that way. But when the markets were formed, there wasn't much concern about utilities or participants in the market bidding in too low and losing money because you wouldn't do that. There's no rational reason to do that. And so there was no concern about a utility that might want to cut in line and sell its power into the wholesale market at a loss during hours when production costs exceeded the market price. And so they allowed this process, which is known as self-committing or self-scheduling, so that utilities could essentially cut in line and force the market to accept the power. Okay. So I just should probably note here that there are actually several flavors of what we're calling self-scheduling or self-committing here. A Sierra Club paper on this subject actually distinguishes self-scheduling from self-commitment from bidding below production cost. And all of these behaviors might really have the same effect, I think, on power markets, depending on the circumstances. So I don't really want to get too much into the weeds on that. Those who are interested can look up the paper in the show notes and explore the details. So what happens when a utility self-schedules its coal plants? What's actually happening? Yeah. And to step back for a minute, I just refer to all of it as operating out of merit. Like I said, the markets were designed to operate in merit and whichever particular mechanism you use to get out of merit, that's the problem because self-committing and self-scheduling might not be inherently wrong. It's only a problem when it's being done at a cost to customers. And I'll be the first to admit that when I first started looking into this Understanding those nuanced differences is somewhat difficult. Yeah, it is. It is. And the Sierra Club paper goes into enough detail that I think people who care about those distinctions can sort them out by reading that paper. Oh, good, good. Yeah, so I think your concept of cutting in line is probably the easy way to think about this, right? So the merit yeah. order says, here's the line that we're setting up for generators, and it's based on the lowest marginal cost, essentially. And so by operating out of merit, you're cutting into that line where your actual cost does not fit into the merit order where you're cutting in. 
Exactly. And so when a power plant cuts in line, it becomes a price taker. That is, it accepts whatever the clearing price is, no matter what the costs of operating that power plant are. So if market prices are high enough and they self-commit or they do whatever to quote unquote cut in line, well, if the prices are high enough, it still makes money. Hmm. But if the clearing price dips below the unit's marginal cost, the power plant loses money in the market. Now, I say that, but in reality, it matters a great deal about whether the plant is a merchant-owned or monopoly-owned power plant. If a plant is merchant-owned, that is to say, the utility is an independent power provider that is entirely reliant on the markets for revenues, and it operates out of merit and loses money, then that loss is translated onto the ledger and gets swallowed by investors or the owners, which is obviously something that they want to avoid, which is why- The power plant operators just lose money. Yeah. Yeah. And they want to avoid that. So they tend to act very judicious when it comes to self-commitment. They are very careful to only do that when they absolutely have to and when they can still come out whole on the other end. But more often than not, what they do is they just offer the resource as a market resource. They let the grid operator or the ISO or independent system operator or RTO, regional transmission operator, to turn the units on or off or ramp them up and down. And when the units are market committed, they're also eligible for make whole payments. So on the off chance that they wouldn't have made enough money to cover their costs, the market will actually pay them through what's called a make whole payment. The economics and accounting are much different for a vertically integrated utility because those utilities have captive customers and have rates set by commissions that are their main source of revenue. So those utilities can pass on the cost of operation to those captive customers no matter what, even if that means running a coal plant at above market rate. So while the owner takes a market loss, that doesn't really translate into a loss on the balance sheets because the captive customers are effectively bailing out these uneconomic coal plants. Right. Okay. So an important distinction there between a merchant generator who's just there to sell power at a profit whenever they can and a vertically integrated utility or a fully regulated utility, which is going to be guaranteed essentially a full recovery of its costs in addition to some profit through its monopoly authorization through the regulatory commission. Yeah. yeah. So in addition to foisting unnecessary costs on utility customers, doesn't self-committing also affect the cost of wholesale power across these large regional power markets in some strange ways? I mean, since coal units are more expensive to run than the renewable and natural gas-fired alternatives that are gradually pushing coal off the grid in the U.S., when they're operated in a fully integrated, regulated utility that's receiving cost-based recovery under cost-of-service regulation, the excess costs of their operation are passed directly onto the customers. So they increase the costs that consumers pay, but somewhat counterintuitively, I think, they also decrease the actual wholesale power price by running at a time when their actual costs are higher, but they're not actually getting paid the price that they would need to operate if they were actually exposed on an open wholesale market. Am I getting this right? Yeah. I can never tell if it's the most counterintuitive or the <laughs> most intuitive because you know, on the one hand, they're artificially suppressing prices. That doesn't really make sense. But at the end of the day, really what we're saying is 
when people aren't participating in the market fully, the market isn't being as effective as it could be. And I think that self-committing or operating out of merit really impacts the market in two distinct ways. So setting aside the impacts of the captive customers, it affects the market and the grid in two distinct ways. One, it displaces some other less expensive power plant. And two, it reduces power prices like you were alluding to. Hmm. Let's first, let's really quickly talk about how it displaces other resources because at any given hour, electricity supply is effectively a zero-sum game. You only produce enough electricity to exactly meet demand. So if a power plant is operating and clearing the market, so to speak, or were to be removed from the market because it wouldn't have cleared, then something else has to take its place. Right. So there's a trade-off. There's a trade there. And typically, that other power plant would be of a lower cost than the power plant that self-committed if it did it so out of merit. So this is where it gets really confusing. Uh, graphical representation can be really helpful. But if you think about the skipping in line analogy, if it wasn't able to skip a line, if it was at the end of the line, then that next unit that didn't clear the market, it would have cleared the market. It would have been called. So that unit is essentially being deprived revenues. Hmm. Right. Okay. So essentially, there's somebody in the place that you would have taken as a lower cost unit. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I guess the flip side of this then is that if you did not have coal power plants operating out of merit, it would actually increase the wholesale power market prices more broadly. Mm -hmm. So the units that were operating would be making more money. Yeah. Yeah. So the unit that they displaced, the unit that would have been called, presumably has a marginal cost slightly above the power plant that set the wholesale price. Right. So you would have a slight increase in wholesale market prices, but since it had a lower production cost, the overall cost of the system would go down. Right. Which, again, at first might seem unintuitive, but that's what markets were designed to do. Markets were designed to help lower costs while providing sufficient revenues to all of the participants. So revenues are determined by market prices. Market prices would go up, revenues would go up, but overall costs would actually go down because more efficient power plants would be operating. So would this also apply to nuclear plants? Because they also tend to have operating characteristics similar to coal plants, like they're hard to ramp, they, they tend to be fully committed or not, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't run the numbers on nukes. Okay. Mostly because some of the data just isn't as readily available hmm. for them. Hmm. And there's also other concerns that I've heard about. A lot of them don't have licenses to ramp up their units on and off. Both nukes and coal plants have higher startup costs than other power plants. But for nuclear reactors, it's much higher than for coal-fired power plants. Yeah. So it's an extensive process. If I recall correctly, it can take like a week to shut down or start up a nuclear power plant. And I think a yeah. coal plant is more like a day or a half a day kind of a process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so we should note that others have actually verified your findings. You're not the only person in the world who's tried to understand this. In October 2019, so just recently, a report by Synapse Energy Economics, to which you actually contributed, was commissioned by the Sierra Club, and it found broadly similar results to the ones that you found. And listeners, of course, can find the links to all these reports in the show notes of this episode if they log into the website. That report modeled how coal units on the MISO grid, so the Midwest independent system operator would have performed in 2017 if they had only been dispatched when it was profitable. And it found that doing so would have resulted in 10% less coal generation and lower system costs, and as we were just saying, higher market revenues. And so it found that self-scheduling was almost entirely like 93% attributable to coal units that were operated by regulated utilities, as we were just saying. So in other words, only those who could actually pass their losses along to customers engaged in this kind of money-losing activity. Merchant generators did not do that. Yeah, yeah. I want to offer some clarification. Full disclosure, I did work at Synapse, and I'm very proud of the work I did while I was there, but I can't take any credit for that particular analysis. I reviewed it, and I gave some feedback. Yeah, but... You were listed in the acknowledgments, so that's why. I yeah, yeah. And I just don't want your audience to think that I contributed to the substantive elements of the analysis. Yeah, fair enough. They deserve credit for it. And also, it wasn't just the Union of Concerned Scientists and Sierra Club. You know, back in, I think it was 2017, Bloomberg New Energy Finance did an analysis that didn't dig into the commitment designations, but looked into market prices and power plant costs and looked at the profitability of the U.S. coal fleet and found that most of it was on what Bloomberg New Energy Finance called shaky ground. And that was done right after my SPP analysis. And I remember calling up the authors and looking at the methods that they used. And it helped inform how I did my next set of analysis that we'll talk about, I think, in a few minutes. If you look at how BNEF did it or how I did it or how Sierra Club and Synapse did it, everyone's taking very slightly different approaches, making small changes in assumptions or data sources. But we're all coming to the same conclusion. And that is, one, that Coal-fired power plants are operating for long periods of time when it's uneconomic to do so. And two, merchant power plants are the exception. They're the ones that aren't doing it. And rate-regulated utilities, those are the monopoly IOUs, electric co-ops, and muni public power type power plants that have captive customers. They're the ones that are engaging in this type of uneconomic behavior. Gotcha. Okay, that's a great clarification. And, you know, before we move on, I really just want to emphasize once again this, again, sort of a counterintuitive result about market prices, because one of the findings from both that study and yours that was surprising to me was that if the coal plants had dispatched only when it was profitable, it would have raised the market price for power. And that actually also implies, I think, that if fewer plants were operating out of merit, the ones that are still operating would make more money. And so it sort of implies that the operators who are dispatching their coal power plants out of merit are actually depriving themselves potentially of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So think of it this way. If in the summertime, market prices are really high, and if it costs you $25 to generate electricity with your coal plant, and the market prices are $30, well, then you're putting $5 for every megawatt hour in your coffers, right? And you're building up 
a lot of profit on your ledger. And then come fall, the prices come down because load goes down, because wind generation comes up. You know, the market prices will drop down, and now you're losing $5 for every megawatt hour that you produce. If you keep generating, you're essentially just eroding all the profits that you made in the summertime. So at the end of the year, you might break even or maybe even make a little bit of money, but you could have made so much more money had you just turned off during the fall when market prices didn't justify operating. Fascinating. <laughs> so why does self-committing happen at all? I mean, don't utilities normally have an obligation to run only the lowest cost resources, like even if they can recover losses from utility ratepayers? Yes, in theory, this is a classic economic information asymmetry problem because in the industry, there's just an overwhelming amount of data that you have to have analysts sifting through. And there's a lot of issues. I mean, your show over the past 100 plus episodes has documented just a handful. And I'm sure you're going to have a lot more episodes in the future <laughs> documenting all of the different issues. So it's a lot for people to synthesize and digest and distill into something that is palatable. Yeah. So you have to know what to be looking for. You have to know where to look for it. And quite frankly, a lot of commissioners and their staff are busy with an onslaught of dockets and hearings and concerns. So it's easy for things like this to fly under the radar. So you're saying that utilities are essentially getting away with it because nobody's watching them closely enough? <laughs> well, I think that's part of it. I hope that doesn't really shock anyone. These are large corporations with franchised monopoly power in exchange for regulation and oversight. So we can't be surprised when monopolies act like they have monopoly power because they do. Hmm. And regulators have to regulate. That's what they're supposed to do. Most commissioners, to their credit, once this issue is brought to their attention, they want to learn more. They want to know how to address it. They want to know how it's affecting their consumers and their utilities are doing this and what can be done to stop it. Most consumer advocates, once this is brought to their attention, they want to address it. So I think the first public reports on this issue are about two years old. There aren't a lot of public analyses about this issue that are older than that. And it went from a relatively obscure issue that only a handful of people at the markets and at FERC really were aware of to an issue that's taken center stage at conferences like the National Association of Utility Regulators at NARUC. So I really think that as people learn more about this issue, as more people pay attention to this issue, we'll start to see it getting resolved. We touched on some of these issues of sort of what watchdogs like regulatory commissions can easily do and what's difficult for them. In episode 73, when we discussed regulatory capture and, you know, the different kinds of backgrounds that regulators often have coming into this job and, you know, how different states operate in different ways in terms of how the regulatory commission functions or what kind of staff they may have or what kind of resources they may have to even watch this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think there's probably inside of here some takeaways for regulators, which I think we'll talk about in a bit. But is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Virginia-based Dominion Energy, which operates 27 gigawatts of power plants in eight U.S. states, announced on December 4th that it was shelving its RFP for up to 1.5 gigawatts of new natural gas-fired power plants in Virginia that it had previously said it would need to provide system balancing services. The company did not say why it had canceled the RFP, but analysts at Rocky Mountain Institute and S&P Global note that years of over-forecasting demand have led to a glut of gas-fired generation on utility systems in the U.S., other NGOs note that Virginia's governor has set a new RPS for the state that calls for 30% of power generation to be renewable by 2030 and 100% to be carbon-free by 2050, and that building new gas plants is simply incompatible with those objectives. Additionally, Virginia's Regulatory Commission, the State Corporation Commission, or SCC, would likely cast a dim eye on building new gas-fired power plants when the company already has more generation than it needs sitting idle. The SEC rejected Dominion's integrated resource plan a year ago for consistently overstating future demand and for not considering other options for its portfolio, such as energy efficiency programs and battery storage systems. Additionally, with Democrats taking full control of Virginia's legislature in November for the first time in 25 years, a Democratic governor in place, and a growing number of elected officials swearing off campaign contributions from Dominion, the company's political influence is weakened, causing some to declare a new New era in utility regulation in Virginia. Item 2. Longtime listeners may recall that we have mentioned a Colorado utility called Tri-State several times over the past year in the news segments of several episodes. Tri-State is a generation and transmission utility serving 46 members in four states. Many of those... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.